Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast on the MedTech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. We have three events coming up this year. Our Midwest Showcase in Cleveland, Ohio on August 30th. Our workshop on commercialization and go-to-market strategy on August 31st, the day after, in Cleveland, Ohio, where there are bundle discounts. And then our Startup Symposium in Houston, Texas, October 25th, and 26th. More information on our website on all three events. In this episode, our host Giovanni Loricella and our guest Chris Bostic at Orchard Capital Ventures discuss investing with patients, providers and payers in mind, why fundraising is more challenging, the biggest challenge of being a venture capitalist, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Chris Bostic. I have waited so long to tell this story and get you on the MedTech Money podcast, which is powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And I want to say thank you very much for jumping on here. Super excited to get your story. And we're going to be talking today about, in general, the macro macroeconomic climate of which we all endured in this MedTech startup ecosystem over the past let's call it six to 12 months, and we'll dig in deeper into that. But more importantly, what does it mean to be a VC during these times and some of those bigger trickle-down effects? And also, spoiler alert, I know that you're heavily into the AI aspects of the medical device industry, the med tech industry, the digital health industry. So we're going to get your insights on that as well. But before we do that, I want to go through my spiel and understand a few more questions that I have for you that we want to up the conversation. And so I've talked to entrepreneurs and investors like you and have built up this platform of insight and information on what does it really mean to raise and invest in med tech. And what we've really discovered is that there's no silver bullet specific formula or even magic about how to raise or invest. And so my goal here is to extract your insights so that we can demystify this process and help med tech innovators benefit from this information. And so the audience of medtech entrepreneurs and investors that we've established over the past couple of years, what we've all been wanting to listen to is your stories and entrepreneurial stories so that we can share your stories and advice with what I'd like to say is our first time founders or CEOs who can certainly benefit the most and literally have no clue of what lies ahead of them on their journey of raising capital. So I thought the best place to start is learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And like I said, before we jump into your background, Chris, and even the firm that you're representing, I want to open it up and warm up with a few questions. So the first one being, what is the lifeblood of a med tech startup and what keeps startups alive, in your humble opinion? Fantastic question and excited to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, I think when you think of medtech startups, you know, it's definitely innovation. You know, it comes first and foremost to my mind. Uh, that's kind of the definition of why startups exist, to disrupt and create these new ideas. But when you think of what leads to innovation, it definitely is people. You know, it comes around people in a couple of ways. You know, one, it starts with the entrepreneurs themselves. The most important part of this is having, you know, these dynamic founders who are willing to, one, identify a problem and come up with a really novel and creative solution and then have the persistence and passion to bring it to market and have the expertise to really bring a vision to fruition. And then, you know, smaller parts of that along the way, on the journey of bringing a disruptive, you know, medical technology, you know, to the forefront, to the patients and to bring good outcomes uh, is the, you know, strategic groups that they work with, the humble investors like ourselves that are just part of the journey who align with these dynamic entrepreneurs and their vision and their hypothesis uh, and finding those kind of work-minded or like-minded people to really influence and bring change. You know, it starts with the people to bring innovation. It's always going to be people first. And then once you have the people and the ideas, you know, everything else that's necessary, like the dollars follows. And you see slide decks on a daily, if not weekly, and certainly monthly and definitely yearly basis, probably by the hundreds or if not thousands. And so doing this for years at this point, you've met different entrepreneurs and you've just, you've seen a lot. You've built your own mental algorithm of entrepreneurship in med tech. What's the hardest part about making investments in a med tech startup? I think it's the, you know, it's a complex industry. You know, it's one where you have everything on your plate at once. You have a highly regulated industry. You have one with high bars. You have one that costs a lot of capital. It's not something where you can just kind of move fast and break things. You know, you have to move very pragmatically and not break things and fix problems. So there's not a challenge that you can't think of in the medtech industry, which is also the exciting part about investing in it. It gives you exposure to so many different dynamics, so many pieces of the puzzle that you have to analyze. So it's a complex puzzle that I really enjoy, uh, and I've been fortunate to do so You know, here at the team. And I'm sure you read a lot. You've had read a lot. You know, very educated man. Uh, what book would you recommend our audience to read and why? And it, and it could be any book. I mean, maybe you want to throw one in about something that's influenced you as a VC yourself, but even on a personal level. So maybe one or two books, but what's a good book recommendation by you? Yeah, I think, you know, I often hear, and these are definitely great for entrepreneurs, like people talk about venture deals. And definitely, if you want to understand the investing landscape, you know, great one to look at. Uh, I'll give two kind of off-center field, maybe, suggestions that might be not have come up as much. Uh, one, you know, I love learning from history and kind of just being a geek, you know, on like thinking about business and operations. So like the smartest guys in the room, you know, the story of Enron, I think is a great one to read and just kind of understand how you can have brilliant people and have, you know, a business idea, and especially in the investing world, and then how things can go awry. Uh, then another one, a friend at a startup actually put me on to uh, is financial shenanigans and how to spout, uh, spot accounting fraud, which is just a fun kind of geeky exercise to just think about, you know, especially when you're looking at public companies and privates, you know, it's less impactful, but still important. It's just like, how do all the numbers come together? Because as investors, that's really what we're doing. You know, you're thinking about how the numbers come together. The earlier you are, the more it's kind of a vision and an idea. But as you start building momentum and revenue, you're thinking about, you know, how does the puzzle pieces come together to actually make, you know, an actual revenue generating business? So it's like a fun exercise if you want to nerd out, you know, on some of the numbers behind, you know, the science. And this one is interesting. I mean, you've you've built your career, which we'll discuss, and now you've been a venture capitalist for a while. But 
in your personal experience, what is the position description of a venture capitalist? And even more importantly, and probably the underlying thesis of this whole entire podcast series, there's a huge dissonance between when entrepreneurs are raising capital and they're looking to venture capitalists to give them that capital or, or invest in them. And what I've learned, especially if it's not an entrepreneur who has become a venture capitalist, or if it's possible, vice versa, um, there is this dissonance between expectations. And so in your position, in your in your mind, the position description of a venture capitalist, and then what do you think the biggest challenge of a venture capitalist is that the entrepreneurs simply don't understand? Yeah. Definitely. And, and I've been really just privileged to work with such a seasoned operating team. Some of my other partners have, you know, scaled multiple billion dollar businesses, but we're really, you know, we're coaches, you know, we're minority investors, you know, the entrepreneurs themselves are the stars of the show. You know, we're just here to, you know, try to guide, provide value, add and advice. But at the end of the day, they're the stars, you know, if I'm, you know, Phil Jackson and, you know, the Bulls coach, the entrepreneurs are Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, and they're building the vision, and they're the ones winning the championship. Uh, so our goal is to figure out ways that we can, you know, gently provide value. It's not to come in and run the company, take it over. You know, our goal is to say, what can I do to enable your vision? Uh, so that's kind of how I see our position as venture capitalists. Of course, you know, we're also a business in our own right. You know, and our product is the founders. That's why you have to, you know, be people first and founder first. Because what we're offering is amazing founders, hopefully to a group of investors that give us money to deploy uh, to exciting visions. So the other part of our job is that, uh, and I think you know, it's a, a complex thing. And the thing I think you wouldn't understand from the entrepreneur side if you've never been in ventures. Not only are we seeing tons of companies. Not only do we have a limited amount of companies we can deploy in. Like I can love a lot of companies. I got to one, I can only make, you know, 15, 20 investments per fund. Two, I also have to bring in investments to the rest of my IC committee, and they have to agree on those investments. And they're also bringing their own investments. So there's a lot of reasons that deals don't get done that have nothing to do with the founder themselves. Uh, and I think that's the hardest thing. Like, we don't like saying no. Like, I don't love seeing a cool company and a founder and being like, no, your, your company will never work, you know. And a lot of times it's not even that your company will never work. It's like, I just don't have the capacity to do your investment, you know, and I really am truly rooting for the sidelines for a lot of companies. I'm like, I love what you're doing. I love your team. You know, I can't do the investment. It's out a mismatch for our fund or whatever. But, you know, I do generally want everyone to succeed because in healthcare, you know, that's the beauty of being a healthcare investor. You know, I want to do well by doing good. And I want everyone and every company that's really trying to bring change to actually succeed. And so here's a part B side ball question to that particular topic. So what you're saying is, and, and here is the question, there are companies that you genuinely think will work, or you like the entrepreneur or the technology and the entrepreneurs and leadership behind it. There's nothing wrong with them. There's this component that forces you or you have to say no for some reason. But what you're saying is it's not necessarily bad entrepreneurship or bad technology is the only reason why VCs say no. It could be timing. It could be human factors. It could be, and I'm making it up, there's four people on your team and there's just not enough capacity because you have enough other good deals that are you're already doing due diligence on. So what you're saying is it's hard enough for these entrepreneurs to find VCs and proper VCs to pitch to, but it also is about timing and a multiple almost invisible factors that could play into it where they're not necessarily a bad company. It's just 
bad variables of bad timing. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Sometimes you wonder how any deals ever get done with all the things and factors that move around in this moving piece. But yeah, there's a lot of companies for all the reasons you just listed and probably 30 more we could all go walk through. But, you know, sometimes it's like your vision is not big enough for our fund returns or your vision will be perfect in you know a year, but then maybe you'll have another investor. So like there's a lot of reasons a VC says no. And we get a little or at least entrepreneurs, I tell you, a little jaded with us because we're quick to say no sometimes. But like, you know, we're we're also, you know, trying to run our funds and hopefully have some time to live our own daily lives. So like it's not out of any kind of mean or, you know, malfeasance. It's just, you know, it's a complex situation to deal with all that on the plate. And, you know, we do genuinely wish all the companies and founders well. And then a, a fun part C to this and then we'll move on. But have there ever been a time where you've seen a company You've had to pass on it for whatever reasons, and maybe you didn't think it was a great company then, or maybe you did, but you had to pass on it. And then you saw them hit a milestone or an exit later on, and you're like, damn, I wish I would have got in on that. Yeah, we have a, there's a phrase for it that was popularized by another fund. I think it was Sequoia, I might be wrong. So please don't be mad at me, anyone listening, but it's called the anti-portfolio. And I think every VC has that, like here are the companies and deals I saw, had an opportunity, tried to do, and didn't end up doing. And you're always kind of tracking and thinking about it. But, you know, we have FOMO too. Like we think about it, you know, like, oh, I knew the one was going to be good and I should have invested or if only I could push harder or you're, you couldn't get it past your IC and you want to like go back like, look, look at that deal. I told you it was going to be good. But, you know, there's always more, you know, we continue to work, you know, every day. You're going to have, you know, more opportunities. There's going to be deals you don't do. There's going to be deals you do. But you always know there's going to be more deals. So that's what you just have to live with as a VC. And this is another fun one moving on here. If you had your magic stick, what would you change about the investing process? I mean, it could be fantasy. It could be realistic. It could be something that you are charging to change the world of VC. But if you did have a magic stick, what would you change? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think, you know, it's if in a magic world, in a perfect situation, you know, you'd want to simplify the diligence process, uh, the negotiation part of that, you know, on the price date, everything. Like if I had a magic fix, truly, I think that's the part where like, you know, nobody gets either joy, either the founders or the entrepreneurs. It is an important time on the negotiation to, you know, learn. It's definitely like a dating process. And that's like the most contentious part. You know, you want to get into a fight before you get married and you're guaranteed to get into a fight over that. But if I could like, have a magic wand to make that part go quicker, you know, of course, like that's the least fun of the party. Like you want to go into the science and the business model. Like that's the fun part of the entire diligence process. Uh, but just kind of negotiating on the terms is like what needs to be done. But like, you know, if I had a magic wand, I think I would change that. I feel like I'm in like a, a sub question kind of mood today because I want to go into a part B on that one too. Does it have to get lethal or dirty during the, the the negotiation on the term sheet side when it actually comes to that. And what I mean by that is like, when you decide to lock in on a deal and you're, the timing's right, it passes your IC, like you guys are ready to move forward. Obviously you have to get through the negotiation and, and, and the terms just to make the investment. But if you had to look back on your history as a VC and you're ready emotionally to make that commitment of making an investment in that company, could you put a percentage onto it on how many fail at the negotiation table? Like you are committed to make a, an investment in that company, but 
you know, both sides for some reason, something goes wrong where it's like, I really do want this in my portfolio, but you're not going to move on that one thing. Well, I've moved on four other things for you. And if you're not going to move on that one thing, then maybe this is the sign of the times and this is not, we, we just can't get past this. And so I'm telling you, I want you in my portfolio, but if you're not willing to budge, we're done here. Like, does that happen often or is there usually a massaging? I mean, sometimes it might get uncomfortable or drag out a little bit, but if you're pretty much emotionally locked into a deal and you can visually see that company in your portfolio, does it generally get done? I think there's a lot of room and opportunity and like it's something I'm very happy with with how my process has been here at OCV and that you know, we have really gone through with all of our term sheets. Like we've never had, you know, a term sheet really not lead to a deal that was accepted uh, because, you know, we are very candid and upfront. Like, you know, I think it's on our webpage. Like we're straight shooters. Like we'll tell you exactly what our expectations are. You know, we're not ones that like kind of like grab another inch slowly every, you know, every time you walk through another door. Oh, and by the way, oh, and by the way, can we get this? And I think that's led to a very honest and transparent process. Now, getting to the term sheet, like you're always going to have negotiations. Like that's just a normal part of doing these deals because, you know, we want to get good things for us and the founders want to get good things for them. And, you know, ideally in any situation as a negotiation, there's a compromise where there's some middle ground where both people walk away okay and a little sad at the same time. Because, you know, in a, in a perfect world, that's just how it, that means you've compromised. Uh, if one person walks away feeling thrilled and the other person walks away feeling terrible, like that's not a good starting point for a relationship. And you know, that's what we really look for is like you want to build a relationship because this is going to be a long term commitment. Once you're an investor and once you're a founder who's taking on investment dollars, like, you know, you're married to each other for which could be a decade. So you want to make sure that that relationship is strong and that, you know, after the deal is done, neither of you has FOMO regret and you want to go out and grab dinner and become best friends because you're in it together to fight a battle, essentially. And now I want to move on to the, the fun part about digging into who you are and also the company. But starting with this, what does the acronym OCV mean? What, what does the name of your company OCV mean? And then is there a story behind it? Yeah, this is always a question I regret. And I get it quite frequently whenever you have an acronym. So it stands for Orchard Capital Ventures. Uh, but there is no meaning to Orchard Capital Ventures, which is the sad part. You know, one of our founders, you know, once lived on a street called Orchard and he's like, you know, it sounds good. There's not like all oh, the ever growing strong Orchard represents our foundation and principles. Uh, but then at the same time, you know, like, you know, at first I was like upset because you're going to get asked that question and people look for the deeper meaning. But like, it's just the name at the end of the day, right? And what's really important is like, what does OCV stand for? And that's kind of where I've started to really take strength and comfort in that and like, the real branding is like, who are we as a team? And what I really rely on is, you know, our kind of our byline, which is, you know, it's diverse expertise backing extraordinary founders. And that's really like what I think OCV stands for to me, because, you know, I feel like we have a really cool team where it's a small, nimble team, but we cover a lot of different multidisciplinary factors, whether it be operators who've grown billion dollar businesses, whether it be scientists like myself, you know, with multi, you know, disciplinary research careers spanning different areas of focus, lawyers, bankers, and that diverse expertise also comes with diverse, you know, backgrounds and opinions. So like we have different ages, we have people from different places, we have a high percentage of immigrants on our team who come from different countries. So I feel that diverse worldview and opinion all goes into a great diligence process that really empowers us to really help and be value add to our founders. Because the founders, as I said, they're the stars, you know, we're looking for those extraordinary players, but we feel that we can bring something to them 
uh, with how our team is built. So that's like the meaning I really try to take out of it. But Orchard Capital Ventures, that's OCB. <laughs> Very good. And we've we've got some of your feedback, some of your thoughts, some philosophy, some mechanical insight thus far. And so lo and behold, the man behind the voice, Chris Bostic, partner at OCV. Who are you? And, and more importantly, tell us what you can and what you'd like to share about who you are on and off the court that you started somewhere. So where are you from? And then literally, how did you build your life and your academics and your professional career leading up to becoming partner at OCV? When we get there, I'll pause and re-ask the question of who is OCV and we'll dive into that, like what you guys actually invest in, how and why. But for right now, let's focus on you. Who is Chris Bostic? Awesome. Yeah. So I've taken, I think, a serendipitous journey you know, through my life. But, you know, I'm an East Coaster who's now in L.A. Uh, so first and foremost, definitely an East Coaster, grew up in New Jersey and definitely more of a New Yorker. But, you know, living here, my wife likes to say I fell ass backward into venture. Uh, I didn't like it when I first went because it was a quite a big, you know, move for both of us and career wise. But, you know, now that I've settled in, you know, I think her assessment was pretty accurate. Uh, but how I started off, you know, I, I'm someone, you know, uh, grew up in a family in New Jersey, as I said, and I'm a first generation college student. Uh, I asked my mother, it's like, when did I kind of know I wanted to be in the science realm and, and really do that? And she's like, as long as I kind of can remember, like you always said you love like drug design, like pharmacology, you know, you were like pharmacy was the thing that interested you. And I think it ties back to seeing, you know, I lived with my grandmother growing up and seeing that she could take medicine and, you know, a tiny pill, you know, could change problems and make her fine, active and healthy. It just blew my mind. Uh, so I always kind of saw it on that route. Like, I want to be a part of that. Like, that's magic to me, you know, as a kid. But like, it's science, you know, it's not magic. You know, it's abstract. It's something we can understand. And I wanted to understand that process. Uh, so I did my undergraduate in biology, uh, went to Cornell, and then I minored in business. And lo and behold, you know, taking the business courses, I was just fascinated by the concepts there as well. You know, and I found the concepts of the business frameworks, you know, business modeling, thinking of marketing equally intellectually stimulating to me as the scientific field. And I was like, I got to marry these two passions. Like, you know, and I thought myself, I'm like, how can I do both of these things in any career that I, that I go on? Uh, so the next step was to get a PhD because I felt that in order to be impactful, you got to be an expert in something. If you want to marry business and science, like, I still think you have to be an expert in science. Uh, so I did a PhD in pharmacology at WVU. Uh, which, you know, set me on to get all the skills I needed, you know, to work and probably either take over, you know, one of the, the name brand companies, you know, from where I grew up, grew up very close to Merck and Bristol-Myers Squibb in New Jersey. So like knew that was a route and I could move to the business side there or go up to Boston and you know, start my own company and, and one of those. And my PhD, you know, I was blessed to have a multidisciplinary PhD uh, which was always a focus of mine, an interdisciplinary program, so broad lens of different areas of research. Uh, but my own lab itself, you know, I did pharmacology and did everything in drug design, studying cytochrome P450s, which is the enzyme that metabolizes most of the drugs you take uh, whenever you're taking it. That's what actually makes those drugs active and then actually excretes them from the body. Uh, but outside of just the traditional kind of drug design principles and molecular modeling and all of that, uh, my dissertation was actually on uh, more bioelectronics and biosensors. Uh, and I had a co-PI uh, principal investigator in the physics department. Uh, so I was studying how do you do immobilize protein, the biological molecule on solid state surfaces like silicon metals and things like that 
and then study electron transfer through that and then use that to do things like bioelectronics and biosensors, make quantum computers or make the things now that we've seen in like COVID, if you think of like Hue Health, like, you know, early things on that. And there's a lot more companies I think coming out in those kind of spaces called like fields like uh, effect transistors. Uh, so very cool, very much on the bench side and further away from patients, which is really was what my passion was, uh, but gave me a, a broad lens. And from there, I thought, you know, how do I learn more of the business, as I mentioned, which was my, my passion area. Uh, I actually incorporated an LLC, and I'll, and I'll mention it here. So I founded a company during grad school with some of my, my peers and colleagues that was kind of a simple company and not a huge success. I don't talk about it very often, but it was on how do you sort pipette chips? You know, a thing if you're in a lab that's, you know, not like super wealthy and just getting the boxes of pipettes already pre-filled and just throwing them out and getting another one, you know, you're usually buying them in giant bags and you're literally having a grad student or a postdoc refill these boxes, which are like these 96 holes, you know, in a thing, you're just putting one in at a time and refilling them. And we're like, well, this is kind of dumb. And I was working with the business school there at WVU. So we formed the company, came up with a device, got a patent. I'm a first author of the patent there. Uh, and, you know, I led the, some of the marketing efforts, but we didn't take it very far because I had to leave. But just in a, in a sense of like business and entrepreneurship is cool. Like, you know, that was always something that was like, I've got to get into this. Like, this is always going to be the thing that, you know, really stimulates me mixing both of those fields. Uh, so I was going to go and, you know, had offers to join industry or go move to Boston. But I met my wife in grad school. And she dragged me to New York City, where she got her postdoc at Mount Sinai, also a researcher on the academic path. And I had a choice then. I could live far apart from my wife and do the reverse commute. <laughs> I could move to Boston, be you know, long distance, or I could go to New York City. Uh, and I chose to go to New York City. And there was, at that time, wasn't a lot in the kind of healthcare ecosystem in New York there yet. And definitely you know, not biotech startups and things like that. Uh, so I ended up finding a postdoc at Columbia University at a translational medicine lab that was a genetics lab who had done a lot of whole genome sequencing, uh, had a huge bioinformatics team to really process and identify some causal mutations. Uh, what they were really focused on was rare diseases, specifically in neurological rare diseases. And they had found, here's a point mutation, you know, that causes this rare disease where you have one to 10 patients worldwide. So you're very confident that that is actually causing the disease. We can study that with the new innovations we have. If you're thinking about CRISPR-Cas9, and you can make mouse models that represent that patient's mutation, which is just one change. Or if you're taking, you know, uh, tissue samples from the patient, you can differentiate them to induce pluripotent stem cells that have the exact genetic makeup and study those on the bench side. Uh, and they were building out a functional team, which, you know, I was a part of to really study some of these disorders. And it really filled in the translational aspect of that. So, like, how do you get a drug, not just from the, you know, the preclinical, the real early bench side, uh, but now thinking about, I want to get something into patients immediately. Like, and our goal was, like, here are some rare disease patients who are literally in New York Presbyterian next door. They have no treatment options. Is there an existing drug that we can use that shows some efficacy? And then can we understand the pathology better? Because, you know, we know this mutation is called, so let's understand it. Uh, so that was great to just fill out my own background, give me a very broad diversity of you know, skill sets, you know, ranging from everything from chemistry, biology, genetics, neuroscience, physics, uh, but also gave me a mindset from both of my areas of research on, you know, we really need to leverage more precision and targeted approaches. 
So I like to think of like my PhD work, you know, was definitely on the targeted side, you know, thinking about molecular modeling, I'm thinking about single molecule resolution, like that's as, you know, as narrow as you can get. And then on my uh, postdoc side, you know, definitely on personalized medicine, like what does that person look like? You know, not the shotgun approach of one size fits all, or, you know, whether it be the mechanism of your tactic, you think of like epilepsies, like our goal right now, or our current treatment paradigm is like, how do I stop all firing in the brain? You know, how do I lower all firing in order to stop epilepsy? And it's like, well, I don't want to stop all firing. You know, I want to just stop the firing that's bad. You know, so like we need more personalized and targeted approaches. And that's really a thesis that I've helped bring to the team at OCV when I joined. Uh, I was lucky to get connected through my lab, at, uh, postdoc lab at Columbia to someone on the team at uh, OCV who was looking to build out their healthcare franchise and hire their first PhD to uh, really bring in that in-house expertise to complement some external value adds and experience they had in the space. And I was privileged to learn from such, you know, seasoned operators who had really already had a tremendous amount of success. You know, one who had already started multiple companies and had founded multiple investment firms in other industries, you know, with over 30 billion in AUM. And another who had grown many success in technology companies, so something outside of the life science space, you know, to billions in annual recurring revenue and had acquired 165 companies. And, uh, and I was like, this is really going to help me, you know, add to my business chops, learning from you know, experts like that. And then, you know, bringing my scientific expertise, at least on day one, and then expanding with the team. And I've been fortunate to start from when I started as a senior associate to now be promoted to partner in leading the healthcare effort here. Wow. A little bit of a long story there, but hopefully. Wow. But that's excellent. And so, I mean, I, just to finish it off, especially on the personal side, I mean, after going to New York for your wife and with your wife, obviously you ended up in LA and you guys both ended up in LA after New York. Yep. So I moved out first, so joined the team and I dragged her out here and she's now at UCLA. Uh, she's an adjunct faculty. She runs the research uh, behavior core for rodent, you know, behavioral models. So she's a neuroscientist by training. Uh, so I never say I'm a neuroscientist. I've dabbled in neuroscience, but if my wife hears me, she's like, you're not a neuroscientist. <laughs> like, you're just a pharmacologist because she's the real deal. But yeah, we're both out here in LA loving the weather. Very cool. And then just to sim over oversimplify that. So lucky enough and, and also now have the experience to back it up, but went from academia directly into venture capital. Yeah, it was a fire hose for sure. You know, and it's only made possible by having, you know, one a supportive team, but also a very experienced team that were willing to, you know, coach me and train me, you know, at the at the forefront. And then, you know, luckily I'm very inquisitive. I like to ask a lot of questions. So you know, I tried to learn as much as I could. I had a treasure trove of information from operational experience from the partners that I, that I joined, and I've been able to learn a ton from them. So it's a perfect landing space for me. Exactly. And I was about to say, I mean, you know, when you look back at your history that you just explained, it's not actually all crazy what you ended up doing, right? I mean, you seemed very science focused, backed with this entrepreneurial spirit. And now all of a sudden, you're in a entrepreneurial business environment that's solely focused on life science, digital health, and, and medical devices, med tech. So um, makes a lot of sense. So which is what we're going to dig into now. Um, Orchard Capital Ventures, OCV, like you said, what is OCV? So now you, you, you're from Jersey, you spent some time up in New York, and now all of a sudden you're out in LA for the past several years at this point. What is OCV? And what I want you to imagine is, imagine you got a mic, you're on stage and the world of entrepreneurs and potential entrepreneurs are right in front of you. And, and so imagine they're either going to send you their slide deck because it makes sense or they're not. 
after you're done. So tell the world what OCV is, how you guys invest, where you invest, check size. I think maybe even more importantly, what you wouldn't invest in just to separate that out. But tell us who OCV is. Awesome. So we're an LA-based, you know, early stage VC fund investing primarily around Series A and B as our entry point. Fund one started in the beginning of 2018. So I joined right after the fund one closed. Uh, there was 168 million fund one, and we have over 100, I think, 75 uh, million in assets under management currently. And we're investing in, you know, innovative and disruptive companies across technology and healthcare. So half of our investments go in general B2B SaaS, PropTech, and other verticals. Uh, but what's of interest today and what I'm here talking about and the part of I lead is the healthcare arm of that, uh, which is about 50% of our investments. And we invest, you know, I would say modality agnostic. So we've done investments from everything from healthcare SaaS, you know, healthcare IT, digital health, med tech, med device, and even therapeutics. Uh, but what's really important to me and what excites me is, you know, iterative product engines that are able to, you know, not only solve one problem well, but have platform capabilities to continue to evolve and develop and solve other uh, problems and needs. Um, things I won't invest in, you know, generally are things that are, you know, kind of single mechanism focused, single asset focused, or you know, very narrow business line. So that iterative part is, I think, the most important. And then my kind of top-down thinking of uh, the problems we're trying to address here is we want to enable more, you know, precision medicine and targeted approaches. You know, so we're investing across all these areas and core uh, components, uh, including, like I said, the healthcare SaaS and the med tech side, which are leveraging technology. And we think and have a strong thesis that the intersection of technology and healthcare is necessary for all the great innovations we're going to continue to see uh, going forward. And I think all of us are seeing that there, we're in this, you know, uh, glorious golden age right now, I think in, in the medical space and healthcare broadly, uh, especially when you look at like therapeutics, med device and med tech with, you know, all the recent advancements. And what I see as an issue is, you know, right now we create so much more data than we have the ability to utilize and it's completely under leverage and you know we can't scrap our healthcare system and build it from the, the ground up uh, so everything kind of has to work within it uh, but i think that ability to leverage some of the data that already is being generated and existing will help us actually create and make a pathway towards you know a more equitable healthcare system you know that provides everyone what they want if the end goal is to get to, doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what doctor you see, you get the same care, you know, how do we do that? And I think it starts with, you know, leveraging the data that we have now, building the infrastructure step one, which is very, you know, poor in the healthcare system, uh, building you know, those targeted and precision approaches you know, that'll lead to those outcomes in the future and laying the foundation. But if you think of the data, like there's over 7,000 peer reviewed publications today in the scientific literature. You know, no one can keep up with all that. If you think of the hardware capabilities of the data that we're able to generate now, you think of whole genome sequencing, you know, the amount of data we're able to spit out. Like we can sequence, sure, Illumina has been fantastic, you know, but can we actually understand and process it? You know, can we understand some of the complexities in different spaces? If you think of things like immunology, where there's so many different cell types. If we understood that, you know, we could come up with a lot more creative and clever solutions on the bench side and the scientific side and the med device side. Uh, but right now that there's a gap there in our understanding and ability to, you know, quantitatively understand, you know, all the data we're generating. And then there's the patient side, you know, 
we have so many touch points to patients now that we didn't have. I'm a big fan of wearing my Apple Watch. You know, I wear it at all times. And I'm a data geek. I go in there. I'm like, how did I sleep last night? You know, what was my heart rate? You know, I even identified because I wear my Apple Watch constantly after I got COVID. It showed me a change in my resting heart rate that, you know, dipped for when I had COVID down for several weeks. And I went to the doctor and was able to show them this data that they don't have in their system and be able to say, look, I'm tracking and I can see it go down. And I saw eventually over like six weeks to a couple of months recover back to normal. So this is the kind of data that we have that's just not within the system. And the only way to leverage that is to use technology and build the infrastructure, use things like AI in order to interpret and help make actionable insights. It's one thing to have a ton of data. It's another thing to have an actionable insight that you can provide uh, to a decision maker, to a patient, to a doctor, to a payer in order to provide the right outcome. So the technologies we're looking for those that are going to enable that precision medicine and targeted approach, leveraging technology to enable uh, the decision-making process, and then to improve all the engagement from the three Ps, patient, providers, and payers. Uh, hopefully that answers some of it. No, huge, huge. So thank you very much for that description. And I want to, for all those listening in, whether they're driving to work or in their cars or listening to this on the treadmill, whatever they're doing, um, I, I want to give some examples and have you shoot them down or, or give a thumbs up and saying, yes, that's what we do. So if we if we say healthcare and you're leading healthcare, and I know that when you talk to different people, this general term of med tech could mean different things to different people. Uh, fundamentally, like at my absolute core, I am a medical device guy, which means anything that's regulated by CDRH from the FDA. But med tech, what I use it for is anything that's regulated, hardware and or software. So we get into software as a medical device. There's a lot of medical devices, truly regulated medical devices that have hardware with also a software and data component. And then we have the purely mechanical devices. So just for clarity on that, and, and what I personally don't do is, is non-regulated technologies, right? So because there's very, very often a very different commercialization plan, right? It's usually how quickly can you scale to your first million in revenue and then you're 10 and then show me how you get to 100 million, but there's really no barrier of regulation along the way, right? And so when you have that regulated path, it's, I don't want to say more predictable, but it's more of a cooking process or recipe rather that you have to follow that things are in place in order for them, which obviously can go wrong at any point in time. But at the same time, there's a regulated pathway that it's not all about commercialization without any limitation based on regulation. So my question for you is, would OCV invest in a orthopedic screw that's purely mechanical? Or are you saying simplistically, if it's a medical device or a med tech technology, there has to be a data component, meaning there's some sort of electrical component to the technology. I want to just get very fundamental and maybe almost elementary in some of the definitions of technologies that you personally would invest in. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned an orthopedic screw as your example case. So we did lead an investment in orthopedic technology that's a, a bioresorbable platform that can do any kind of skew, so not just screws, although they started off with pins and screws, you know, they're now up to things like suture anchors and even doing tests on plates. Uh, so very much a platform and that's what was attractive to us. Uh, what we do like, you know, I would say uh, we love when there is the software component on top, like we don't mind hardware if software and recurring, you know, kind of sources 
hard there because I think we add just a ton of differentiated value there, you know, and that's what I'm really kind of bullish on on our team and, you know, our superpower, what makes us the dollars you want to take over others. Uh, you know, there's a lot of teams out there who understand one of those aspects, you know, super, super well, but there's not a lot of nimble teams like us, you know, where, you know, there's four of us on the investment team that you get the expertise of, you know, both scientists on the same call, healthcare operators, and then also someone who, you know, tangentially is like, oh, yeah, I've done a SaaS company, you know, I've acquired 165 similar models to this, and I can give you advice on how you do your pricing, how you structure your contracts, how you should do this. And I think that's where, you know, we get most excited to, to put our bigger checks into. Not to say we wouldn't do some of the other things you described as well. Uh, you know, we generally like to come in. It's more of a staging. At what point is it the right point to come to us is a better question there. Uh, we generally like to come, you know, when there's revenue generation, you know, happening. We're a little bit more later stage. Uh, not that we don't love to follow and track companies because, you know, we're scientists. I like to geek out and, you know, understand. Uh, but we try to come in when the regulatory risk is more understood because it's a lot of work. You know, I think. You know, and I remember this process, you know, even with our own companies, you know, that there's a handshake at the FDA approval. Like, you know, this is great. We acknowledge the win. But now the real work begins. It's kind of like the saying that we have. And, you know, so we really want to help on that real work when the revenue is coming in, because that's the beauty of med device and like med tech. Like it's still a product like the FDA, unlike therapeutic, doesn't just give you, you know, guaranteed revenue, guaranteed traction, guaranteed sales. Like you, you then have to go like, all right, we got through stage one. Now the real battle is actually making a commercial product and all the things and market mapping and metrics are on there is where we really get excited to dig in. Uh, so first and foremost, loved ones that have software that are really doing that technology intersection. And there's a lot of companies, as you mentioned, it could be wearable devices, it could be other medical implantables that are feeding data back. Uh, but, you know, if we see an opportunity that's great, we can be opportunistic, I would say. And the others, if they're post-revenue generation, and have an understanding where we can add some value. Awesome. So we, we have to tackle some fairly big topics in the time that we have left together. So I'm going to jump right into it. And thank you very much for not only sharing who you are, but hyper-clarifying what OCV does and who and what you guys invest in. So thank you for that. Um, First little pickoff topic, and just for clarity, especially given your therapeutics and pharma and biopharma background, um, we just talked about the software components and med tech in general. As an investor, for all those listening in, and, and you can go fairly high level on this one because those who are listening are typically a med tech audience, uh, but I want to just add some education from a, an investor standpoint and some of the nuances. When you're looking at therapeutics or pharmaceuticals or biopharma and then digital health and let's just assume for the sake of this conversation digital health is non-regulated digital health um, and then med tech which is regulated hardware and or software which covers a, a fairly large umbrella from an investor standpoint what are the nuances of investing in each of those silos so once again the biopharma therapeutics aspect the non-regulated digital health and then the med tech or Overall. I mean, is there a different approach and are there big themes that you can just highlight as to, okay, if I'm a VC looking at all three of these silos, these are the nuances that I have to pay attention to if I'm going to make an investment in any of these three silos? Yeah, absolutely. That's a fantastic question. Uh, it's a lot to tackle. So I'll start <laughs> kind of section by section, but I first, I kind of split it between the therapeutics and the other, both the other ones, because they're a little bit more similar. The therapeutics is kind of like the eye, the black sheep in that one. It's very different than the other dynamics. And I think it's more of the 
if you build it, they will come. You know, like you're not generally concerned in a therapeutic company. If you're a first in class molecule, you know, in a space that doesn't have a treatment, you're not so much worried about is there revenue, is there reimbursement, is there exit, is there an acquisition profile? So that's not the risk you're thinking of there. The risk you're thinking of there is, you know, it's a very capital intensive business. You know, you're going to have to raise hundreds of millions of dollars to bring you know, a molecule along. So you need, I would say, good science doesn't fail you know, because of the science and everything, or great science doesn't fail. It fails because it runs out of money. You know, like if you had infinite amount of dollars into great science, you could eventually iterate and make a product, you know, like, you know, there's something, if the science was truly great, like maybe the first asset didn't work, the first target, but if the science itself was, you know, impeccable, if you had unlimited dollars, that scientist would just, you know, figure out, tweak. Just like when you're in a lab, like the first experiment never usually works. You know, you're, that's what your PhD is or doing research is, publications are. Like you're continuing to iterate, like, okay, it wasn't the first thing, but it's this. And you're utilizing the approach. But as an investor, you know, you have to be able to say, not only do I need to find great science, but what is great science that can work happily, efficiently on a returns basis? And that's what you're looking for. And that's why a lot of people say, like, we like platform sciences, but you you're valuing on like the, the asset that's going to be the first thing that actually prices the company, gets money. And that's the tricky part, you know, of doing the therapeutic investments. It's like, how do I find something that will quickly get to value inflection point, you know, despite how great the science is, doesn't fail early, you know, or fails early enough that it's not impactful to the spending so that they can put money to the right resources and it has a big enough return potential, you know, to justify the investment in the risk profile. And that's the highest risk profile, the highest amount of uncertainty. You know, you're looking at from phase one, 10%, you know, probability of success against the FDA with a little nuance depending on indication. Uh, but that's the general math and numbers game you're playing uh, on the risk spectrum. Then if you move over to the digital health and the, the med tech, uh, if you're looking at med tech and uh, med devices, things that are regulated, as, as you mentioned, you know, you still have some of the risk of, you know, getting FDA approval and everything. But, you know, as alluded to, if you build it, does not mean they will come here. Uh, so it becomes a whole different beast than that. Like now you need to think about a commercial process. Like, you know, how do you scale this business and make sure that you actually have a need that people want? And on that one, I spend so much of my time, you know, thinking about the three P's. Uh, patients, providers, and payers. And like, this is the advice I give to most companies. And, you know, I'm always glad that it's helpful when I do hear it. But like, you know, I started understanding the healthcare market a lot better. You know, when you view the frame that, you know, it's a very financially driven uh, market and institution, unfortunately. And you have to benefit everyone in order to get adoption to win. And my rule of thumb is like, you really want to benefit all three Ps in order to be a good company, to be an investable company. Not only does the patient have to get a benefit, not only does the doctor, the provider have to get a benefit, but the payer has to get a benefit. And, you know, for the patient, it's outcomes, it's ease of use. It has to be something easy for them. You know, and that's usually a lot of focus goes on to that. I would say, like, I'm making the patient's life better. This should happen, right? You know, but generally that's not, you know, the only part of the, the, the puzzle. So you have the provider. They're stubborn, you know, and they're like, they've learned and they're like, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I've been trained on. Uh, and it has to fit into their workflow. It has to make their lives easier. It may need to make them more money. Like you got to tackle those issues. So like, you're like, oh, but it makes your patient experience better. Like they're going to, you know, have a better outcome. And they're like, if there's, I can debate that, like, you know, how much evidence do you need to prove to me? Do I have to go into the clinical guidelines and be like, now I know it's better and I should be doing it as a doctor. You know, there's always plausible deniability. So that's why you have to kind of benefit those other aspects of the doctor. 
you know, for the payer, they just need to make more money. And they need to make more money in a way that they can demonstrate and prove, you know, so that's what companies need to think of. Like, if you say, oh, I'm going to reduce the amount of surgeries for this, you know, space, you know, in five years, guess what the payer is going to tell you? <laughs> Show me five years of data that you reduce the amount of surgery in real world settings. So like everything comes down to just like you have to benefit those three. And that's how my lens for those are. Uh, and then when you have all those, you know, check marks there and it's an exciting space with a lot of potential, I get really excited about the med tech and the digital health kind of falls into that too. Without the regulatory, it's still, it's kind of the, the people who are serving your product, you know, it's still kind of the same dynamic. So that's like my lens that I think breaks down healthcare in a way that hopefully in a very simple statement, like makes everyone be like, okay, I can start kind of analyzing and thinking through companies and business models there. And And so... Would you say one is easier than the next or as from an investor, when you're looking at the therapeutics versus the digital health and med tech, like you just said, is is it simply different? I mean, do both require the same amount of due diligence or is one really harder than the next? Just to oversimplify it, just to give us some clarity before we move on. Yeah, hard in different ways. I would definitely say one's easier, you know, in the therapeutics you're doing. The, the dive is, you know, immense, you know, in the science, like you really got to be into the experiments that every predicate study that's been done, you know, matters, like it's a different data point to really understand both the mechanism, the target, you know, what you're going for, the literature, there's so much you could spend just, you know, infinite amount of time doing the scientific diligence, which is everything there. On the other side, there's so much commercial diligence to do to really understand and maybe a less accessible database act, to be honest, to be frank, it's harder, you know, you can't just go to a journal and find every paper of here's what payers thought about X problem and solutions. So it's a lot of grind and work to get onto the calls with the KOLs and networks, the doctors, uh, in order to understand their pain points. So I'd say both of them are very hard, but there are different kind of areas of focus. And, you know, the best, the best thing about med devices, you still have to read the literature and the science too, because most of the time these are medical approaches. So it's not like that's a, a foregone conclusion, but I think you just add more complexity in a sense. Uh, but yeah, a lot of hours are spent in diligence. You know, we're very prideful on our diligence. You know, we never rely on other diligence. We, whether we're leading or not leading, you know, we come in saying we're high conviction. We're going to be value add. You know, that's first and foremost to us. And that means we're going to dig in and really understand your space, your model, your company, your technology and science. And we often get complimented on our diligence and, and the thoughtful depth of our questions, regardless of our check size. And going back and trying to connect this earlier on in terms of the humanness of, of investing, right? Like we talked about when entrepreneurs reach out to you and it may be the wrong day or under-resourced and, and while you're doing diligence on other deals. And so it's not a perfect system, right? And so I guess what I'm saying is I know that, and I've heard directly from entrepreneurs that when VCs provide great feedback after conducting excellent diligence, it's a learning experience and it's educational for everyone, which is good for businesses overall. I mean, these burgeoning med tech entrepreneurs, right? And these startups, but from a portfolio perspective, right? I mean, like I said, the human aspect, like anything can go wrong. And if you're doing commercial risk assessments on med tech, for example, what, what's the one-liner? If you invest in 10 companies in a fund, you're hoping that at least you need one to return the fund. And then anything on top of that is cherries on top, right? And everyone wins. And then hopefully that's the hope. But when you go so deep in due diligence and you go, whether it's the science risk or the commercial risk or the talent risk, um, still to this day, I mean, if, if you sell 
half your portfolio companies or you exit half your portfolio companies, that's phenomenal. That's not typical, right? I mean, so out of all that work, there's still a lot of unknown invisible factors that make this a very valuable business, if you will, even though there's a lot of brain and um, knowledgeable effort that go into this. There's just too many variables for everyone to just make it completely de-risked. Absolutely. And I try to honor the time that the, the founders spend with us because, you know, really at the end of the day, like, you know, I enjoy the diligence process because if you're doing diligence right, I feel you're learning from a great company and a great expert in their space. Like, and every founder should be the foremost expert in their space. Like, that's why they started a company so that I see a point and a pain point. So, like, it should be a fun, you know, educational process. As, you know, uh, scientific learners myself, like, you know, I feel like I'm gaining from that process of talking to them. And, you know, I'm hoping, you know, the best, like, the least I can do is be candid and give them feedback. And I, I love our team. We're very much straight shooters. So, like, you know, we're willing to say, like, the truth, you know, where I think other VCs sometimes don't, I hear. They're just like, oh, I passed, but I'm not going to give you any reasons or anything just because I don't want to, you know, have anything out there. But, like, I'm willing to be like, you know, I loved you, but, you know, here are the things I'm concerned about and and would love to follow up or it'll never fit just because it's outside of scope. But, like, I know I want to make it as painless as possible. Because uh, I understand how hard it is. You know, we're fundraising ourselves. I get it. <laughs> so awesome, awesome segue. And that is the topic of the hour that we're going to be finishing up with. Here. Um, we are in the hopefully end period of a fairly sticky, silent, challenging period that we've all endured for, once again, depending on who you talk to, six months, maybe even a year for some people that you may talk to. Um, I want to end our time together on the macroeconomic conditions that have kept us in somewhat of a sticky financial situation when it comes to fundraising or raising a fund from a VC perspective, um, because we all remember this frothy Gatsby period of 2021, let's call it. And, and it certainly started on the back half of 2020 when we all got our feet, even though we were virtually, or I should say feet together or stood tall after we had COVID set in. And then the back half of 2020, when we all realized we were sitting from home, but we still need to make the world spin and turn around. Um, we started making moves pretty quickly and the money started flowing and the money started getting raised virtually. And we were doing podcasts on this particular series about hundred million dollars raised over zoom when, you know, raising money and never meeting your investors pre COVID was blasphemy like it would never have happened um and so here we I did are my first deal like that you know during COVID <laughs> and I love it it's one of my favorites uh, it's uh, called rad AI so they are doing uh generative AI, natural language processing as we called it at the time because I've been in the space for a while uh but to help workflow automation for the radiology practices and just crushing it but completely virtual you know I sit on their board you know we had so many virtual meetings and after we wrote the check was the first time I had flown out and they were only like in SF. I'm in LA. So it's not even a hard flight, but with COVID and everything, you just don't see each other, but it's been a great investment and I've been very happy to, to have done it, but it was just crazy. As you mentioned to like, think about having done that all on zoom and to think just like, you know, four years ago, zoom didn't exist. We were all doing these conference calls with no video at all. I'm like what page are you guys on? Flip the page three of the deck. Like this is wild how life has changed. <laughs> Completely, complete, and now we're all back to traveling. And it was, and it wasn't even like a a slow ramp up. I mean, when when people were able to start traveling again in 2022, I don't think 
think there's a, a weekend or a week anymore that there's not a conference that someone can go to. So we are certainly back. Um, I'm living on a plane again. I was grounded for a couple of years, but drove me crazy because I was living on a plane before COVID. And now I'm back too. So um, anyway, you know, my, my question for you is, we're in this tough time. And a lot of people are hearing a lot of different things. But personally, what I'm experiencing is all these startups are simply having a very challenging time raising capital after a fairly frothy period in, in 2021, like we talked about. But it goes a step further than that because VCs are having challenges raising their funds. And so I want to start picking your brain on that and just hearing from what you've been experiencing as a VC yourself. Like it starts from the top down. Why are VCs having challenges raising funds? And Due to that, what does that mean for the actual startup ecosystem? Meaning, what are you doing with the funds that you already have? And how are you sustaining your current portfolio? Are you making that a strong priority versus new investments? And then how does that actually unfold into a lot of these startups having such a strange and challenging time raising capital? And then what does this mean for when we eventually do come out of this? So I know this is a loaded question. Um, and there's a lot there, but basically what I'm asking for is your personal insight, Chris, on what have we experienced for the past year almost, um, and certainly a very hard six months after such a frothy period, and what's your take on how this all happens and maybe how we get out of it? And I'll let you run. Yeah, let me try to unwind this Gordian knot of a question. <laughs> this is a, a meaty <laughs> one, but it's a great one. And, you know, it's one that I think everyone should be aware of, you know, including the founders, because like, I think it's easy to think in the founder land to just be insulated from, you know, this kind of macro environment, but like it impacts everyone's decision making. You got a plan based on this. Uh, but I'll start with just like just why, you know, what what happened? Like, why are we even here? And I think, you know, you really think about where we were in this kind of 10 year bull run, what kind of helped fuel it. A lot of the, the things, you know, there's, you know, the amount of capital in the market, there's things like that. But the thing that people don't pay attention to is just the interest rate. You know, like that was an unprecedented time where you had, you know, the interest rate dropping down and then hitting zero and being at zero. So the cost of capital is free. You know, when money is free, you can do a lot of different things. And it was historically just low even before it went down to zero during the COVID period. So that means the powers that be, the people who have money, the allocators, you know, are like, where can I make more money with this? If the cost of capital is so low and things like, you know, if you're thinking about savings accounts, treasuries, all that, if that's not going to give me a good return, if it's going to give me, you know, the minimum return, you know, I'm going to go to the public markets. And if the public markets are raging and going great, you know, and their money is able to be accessed into the system, you know, how do I beat the public? You know, the public market is just part of a strategy. You know, everyone buckets you know, on these massive asset allocators. They're like high risk strategies, medium risk strategies, and lower strategies to get the best return and diversify their assets. You know, and with the public markets, you know, they were returning, you know, 30% year over year, you know, in the, the height of some of these things. How do you beat that? You have to take a lot more risk on your private market strategies. And that means venture. You know, venture is one of the, the more high earning, you know, high risk, high reward profiles. And you're now like, how can I put money to work and beat like, you know, 30% year over year return? You know, what kind of strategies does a VCU firm employ to do that? 
crypto, that made a market where, you know, you had a lot of capital flowing to everyone in the system. And a lot of capital was coming to VCs and a lot of VCs were deploying capital to a lot of different strategies, companies, and willing to take big swings. They knew the money was there. So you see a lot of up rounds. You see a lot of people saying, like, I'll pay more than the next, the, the next guy will pay more than me because the public market shows a lot of exits. You know, these companies are able to with lower traction than historically, you know, exit and provide liquidity. So everything's kind of good. As the system's dancing, you know, everyone can dance along with it. And it's not a bad idea to dance along with it. You know, I think uh, Bill Gurley, I think from Benchmark has that quote. It's like, you know, while the music's dancing, you got to dance along with it, you know, and your only goal is to really get out before the music stops. You know, that, that, that's why you make the peak of your returns. And if you don't dance, like you were missed out on giant, massive gains over the last 10 years. So not investing and saying everyone's foolish or doomsdaying, saying the next drop is kind of uh, the counterintuitive move, especially in venture, because you don't make money by saying the market's too high. Like you can't short the venture and private market. So your only way is to participate and make good decisions. Leading up to where we are now, the interest rate has gone up and it's not going to go back down. You know, historically has no precedent for being at zero percent. And I think everyone has to come to the realization that this is the case. So whether the market improves on the public side, you know, and you see some better traction, you know, and some of those uh, issues, you're still going to have a higher cost of capital. Right now, the cost of capital is quite high. And that means, you know, for an asset allocator, you know, the LPs, the bigger money people, they're like, if I can put money into things like debt, you know, and, and debt gives them a 15 to 20 percent year over year return with, let's call it 95, 90 percent probability of success. Why would I take risk on something else unless I can dramatically beat that, you know, that return, you know, or, you know, there's, you know, some other powers that be and reasons behind it. But it's a hard mathematical point for us, you know, as allocators on the investing side to deal with, you know, and that's where LPs are like, one, I have these other attractive options now. And then two, you know, they've already deployed a lot of capital in the private markets, you know, over the last few years. And now their private market companies, you know, are still at the same valuations they were, uh, but they have something called the denominator effect, which you'll hear a lot from the LP standpoint, where the companies that they invested in that are on the public side have been corrected quickly and savagely, you know, down. You know, so that means like, all right, my public company positions, which you know, I wanted to be X percent of my portfolio, have now plummeted down. But my private company positions and VC funds and everything that's on the private markets has stayed the same because, you know, they're a much slower cycle to actually change and, and readapt. And what are those companies marked at? You know, the private market is not as efficient as the public market. So it's really hard for them to know. But all they do know is like right now and today, they're over allocated in private markets, you know, by, you know, by the uh, stance, by the fault. And that makes them very hesitant to invest. You know, they're not going to invest in the near term, definitely not, you know, in the next six months, you're not going to see a huge change in this. And there's going to be a long time to kind of unwind, you know, what are the real valuations now that we're seeing a decrease in the exit value, you're seeing a decrease in multiples in the public comps that we all use to kind of think, if my company succeeds, this is what it will be worth at X revenue and X milestone. If that's all gone down, you know, and I was previously basing it on different numbers in 2020, 2021, you know, what does that look like? You know, so that's going to, I think, you know, really plug up the capital flow into the VC system and make it more challenging. And it's one of those things that this is a macro. It doesn't necessarily speak to every specific firm. You know, I think we ourselves at OCV feel like really strong about our portfolio and what we our number one, you know, kind of mandate was we're going to be a value add experience investor 
and high conviction. And we're going to use that so that we can come to a company and get in at good pricing, get in at great inflection points because we're bringing more than just capital when we come to the investors in order to negotiate our position. If you come and your only thing you have to offer is your dollars are green, you, you, all you can do to win a deal in a competitive market is to pay more. You give more valuation, you give higher things. Uh, so, but regardless of that, it still makes it harder for LPs, especially the bigger institutional ones, to invest in VCs. And therefore, VCs are more reticent to invest in startup companies. You know, they also have issues where, you know, they want to have their own companies, which need to raise more rounds, and they have to think about that. Uh, and ideally, if your companies are performing really well, those are the best investments because the, the number of the gain comes down. If the cost of capital is higher and you have to beat, you know, a guaranteed return that someone else can get in debt, you know, that's 15 to 20 percent, you need to change the risk price you're paying. The risk adjusted price for your companies needs to be lower. Uh, your returns have to be equal or better. And the one way to do that is to know the people, know the company really well. So a lot of VCs, ourselves included, are investing in some of their own portfolio companies because, one, you know them very well. You've seen them perform and you know they're executing, you know, whereas if I meet a new company, I now have to say I've not met this team before. Um, I have to get to know them, have to have really strong confidence in that everything they're telling me is true as far as going to not only where we're at today, but where we're going to be in the future, you know, and have no history, you know, real evidence to know what they were saying six months ago. Because, like, it's easy to be like, oh, we're going to hit this number. Uh, then when you don't hit the number and you come to your VC, the new VC for the first time, they'd be like, oh, yeah, we always projected to be at this number. Like, this is exactly where we planned to be, you know, and, and that little nuance. Not that it's fine. Like, people are going to miss. Like, the only thing we all know about projections is that everyone's wrong, you know. But when you have a company that you're already invested in and you've seen how their thought process has gone, you've seen how they executed and navigated issues and problems over a long period of time, tremendously, you know, lowers the risk profile in your mind. But you still want to do new investments. And we know we're still deploying capital and doing new investments. And, you know, you're trying to navigate the best ways to do that. One, find exciting opportunities that you have that insight on. Uh, so we have companies that we've been tracking for a long time. And that way we know them better. So it's not like I'm coming to you at day one. It's like it's lower risk because I know you. And I feel like other firms probably will do that as well. Uh, then you find companies you can bring value to. So we're looking at companies like what can I bring a lot of value to from our internal and external affiliates? You know, we have a lot of things in healthcare, including some large health marketing channels, uh, both the physician and provider side. You know, we have franchises that has 60 million unique monthly visitors of patients, you know, that come to their sites for health market news. And uh, we also have uh, affiliates that cover 80% of U.S. physicians or active subscribers for health market news updates and things. So we're like, what can we leverage that on to bring that risk profile down? And then another macro thing I see people doing is a lot of people are going earlier. So if you're a seed company, good news. Not a lot has changed in the seed yet. Uh, so that's the the one cherry on the cake uh, here is that you can still have a lot of interest because people see a seed company takes 10 years, you know, before you expect it to get to the exit market. And 10 years from now, we're not going to be in the same market as now is the hope. You know, next year, two years, three years, people are very much more concerned. Uh, but the seed pricing has been the most resilient. Uh, and maybe it's gone down a little bit in pricing, but at that stage, the difference is a lot more de minimis as far as, you know, the amount of dilution you take versus like a series B, you know, when pricing coming down there is a huge difference in how much a founder's dilution is. Uh, so, and then there's the other advantage, uh, advantage of a seed company right now is there's a lot more investors going there because they feel like they can hide out from this bad macro environment. So there's a whole bunch of new funds. It was on Fortune term sheet this morning that uh, both Excel and A16Z are doubling their accelerator programs and putting more dollars to find more seed companies. 
So there's a lot more activity going to seed. Uh, so starting off the business is easy, but what that means for companies is you have to execute. You focus everything on capital efficient execution because you can get the seed dollars, but then when you get to the series A, you know, those investors are going to be the skeptical ones and the ones that are going to want to see traction to prove out the value that you're asking for. But it's a hard market for everyone, but some of the best companies are built in hard markets, as they always say. So I, I wouldn't, I think founders are already crazy. So I don't think this is going to deter them. So they can just <laughs> take that stride that some other big businesses have built in these markets. And it gives you good discipline that I think always works. You know, the discipline you build now will work in a bull market and a bear market. The discipline you build in a, bear, a bull market will not work in a bear market. So a couple smaller questions on that, but just, just in general, before we go in there, as a sign of hope. Uh, in the life science, and let's stay med tech right here, right now, even if those skeptics have for the next few years, and as VCs focus on their current portfolio companies, as burgeoning companies, which you just mentioned, a lot of attention and, and health is still going towards the seed market. Um, we're not dead in the water for the next few years, right? I mean, it might be a little sticky and not as easy and certainly as frothy as it was a year or two ago, but it's not like we're approaching apocalyptic situation where there's going to be a uh, dark ages of, of health tech, med tech innovation for the next five years. I hope not for all this. And I think there's still money out there. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of dollars that were already raised, you know, and, you know, what happens to those dollars? I don't think they all just go back to the LPs and get cut. You know, they'll be deployed very pragmatically. But there's still money out there and you're still seeing deal flow now, although it's dropped, you know, the hope. And I think what we're all kind of crossing our fingers for is we adjust to a more normal market, you know, not the frenzy that was a complete outlier of 2020 and 2021, but back to more like a 2015 and a 2016, you know, which deals get done, you know, companies get created, you know, and I think it's smart and prudent of founders right now to just really think, how can I get the dollars in and the best uh, investor partner? Because like, Really, when a founder takes a bet on an investor to come into their company, you know, they're investing in them. You know, they're investing their future earning potential of that company into someone they think is going to help them get there. You know, so adjust quickly to the new reality. Bring in the right partner. Don't be like, oh, let me just wait three months and see if the market improves six months. Like if you have the dollars and an investor that's aligned that you like and you think can help you, you know, take that money on. Don't fight the battle of like, if I can just keep 2% more, you know, my ownership, because that's just not going to do you a service right now. Adjusting quickly in this market, you know, and think, okay, here's what it is like for right now. Uh, and if I build my company for right now, it'll succeed long term. You can always add more dollars or more spend and everything later if the market improves, but you can't cut, you know, and like extend your runway if you've already spent the dollars. So not to oversimplify again, though, too, but when you mention how VCs are conserving their dollars for their current portfolio companies, um, and, and it's a less risky play based on you putting your money in companies that you already are aware of, especially the teams, et cetera, and hitting those milestones, is it fair to say that those med tech companies that have institutional investors that are part of a portfolio company, they have a little bit of a leg up than these new companies that are maybe have been seed financed through angels and family offices and now are looking for their first time institutional money. And because they're already not part of a portfolio, based on a little bit of the skepticism and conservatism that's going on right now, they might have, those companies might have more of a struggle where the portfolio companies that are already currently existing, as long as they're doing what they say they're doing and expected to do, um, they'll likely have a leg up in terms of continuously getting invested in. 
I think for the short term, that's probably my thesis, just because, you know, right now, like, you know, when the shit hits the fan probably right now, like, that's like, of course, you're going to be like your first thing. And that's like your portfolio is your first priority. So like, you're just going to have the first bandwidth, the first pass, essentially, and companies are performing like it's an easy thing. It's like you just see them performing. I don't think that'll be you know the case for long term. Like companies are going to raise money and funds got to do. You can only put so much money into your existing companies anyway. You know, so eventually you need to look externally. So, you know, bear down and, you know, hunker down and have great metrics and everything. But eventually, I think that will improve, you know, for the companies going to like the Series A, Series B stations who have raised money from, like you said, the family offices, you know, and execution. But there's always outliers. Like it's going to be a little bit harder. You take a few more calls, send a few more emails by an order of magnitude to get the same pro- uh, progress that you got before. And I think that's kind of the process now. It, it'll just be a step function harder, not impossible, but a step function harder. So, Chris, all I have to say is it was definitely worth the wait to have you on the MedTech Money podcast series. And this story has been absolutely incredible. We're up on time, and I certainly want to respect yours, but also thank you so much for your time and insight and wisdom that you shared with us, as well as your story, both personally and professionally. And now we know a lot more about OCV, but also thank you very much for the the demystification of what it means to invest in life science and digital health versus med tech, and then certainly giving a little bit more clarity to those listening in on what we've actually been enduring and from a top-down approach, meaning LP, VC, and then into the company. So thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us today and your time. Very much so worth the wait. And Chris Bostic, partner at OCV, Thank you so much. This is the MedTech Money Podcast series where we demystify raising and investing capital in MedTech. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.